What is up, everybody? This is Ryan here with the Scale Up Show. I have an awesome guest on today. I have Nick Jordan, who is the founder of Narrative. Talks about a referral-based growth strategy where they integrated into the product that's created viral growth for their solution in a marketplace model, something truly unique in monetizing data, which is a byproduct of a lot of SaaS products. Nick goes down a lot of routes that most people haven't talked about before on the show. So you're going to want to check this out. Don't miss it. And we'll see you on the episode. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Nick Jordan. Nick is the founder of Narrative, which is a platform that helps businesses in a variety of different industries reach their goals using transformative data tech. On top of it, too, he previously had product leadership roles at global tech companies like Adobe and Yahoo. Nick, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. Ryan, thanks for having me. Yes, sir. I, I'm excited to get into data. Data is all the rage right now. We got chat GPT rolling out about a week and a half ago. Um, people have more data than we know what to do with. So uh, I, I can't wait to get into how your solution works, how you leverage it, and then the insights you're seeing. So um, real quick, before we do that, though, I want to do a real quick revenue rundown. So where are you guys at in terms of your ARR? We're going to close out this year right around $4 million in ARR. Awesome, man. Congrats on that. Uh, what about your, your revenue growth go-to-market strategy? What's your primary focus there? So we, we have a bit of a mixed strategy. We have an enterprise sales team, and, and, and a lot of our customers are, are fairly large enterprises. Um, we have a product-led strategy. You know, our, our entire platform is self-service, and people can start, you know, come in and start using it. And and what's interesting is because you know our, our platform often has companies working with each other on the platform. We have a, a sort of referral-based growth as well. You know, we have a lot of our customers that will actually bring their partners into the ecosystem, and once their partners are in the ecosystem, they can actually start working with other companies as well. And so. There's a nice network effect that the platform creates. Awesome. Well, I want to definitely dig into that because I'm very big into a referral-led growth motion, uh, which as I see is an untapped opportunity. So we'd love to get into to that a little bit later. How large is your team size? We're about 35 people. Okay. So 35 people. Uh, and then can you walk through your solution and in, in the outcome it creates in a couple of sentences? Yeah, I mean, the, the basic idea is this data becomes more important. Companies are often sharing data amongst each other. But that, that thing that they're sharing that we talk about is, is data is not homogenous. It comes in an infinite number of forms, which actually makes it sharing it very hard. We give a tech platform that, that can be given to both sides of that equation that allow them to more easily share and collaborate around data, but you know, continue to implement all of their you know, business processes and governance uh, and, and, and not just sort of push their data around the world in a, in a willy-nilly fashion. Yeah. No, I think that's fantastic. And are you bootstrapped or are you funded? We're funded. Okay. VC uh, or PE? Uh, venture capital funded. Um, you know, we're, we're probably going to go do a fundraise again in the first half of next year. And, and you know, that, that may be more private equity. It may be venture again. You know, the, the macroeconomic climate, uh, climate has a, a lot of question marks around it. And so we're, we're kind of in a little bit of a wait and see motion. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that makes sense, man. There's a lot of uncertainty. So there's a lot of different routes you could go. Um, but that's a real good backdrop and just on, on your company. So let's talk about you, man. How did you get to this point? How did you become a, a founder? And, you know, we talked a little bit in the pre-show about how you approach problems. So can you just give us a backdrop and kind of how you got to this point? 
Yeah, I actually had no interest in, in, in founding a company. Like, I'm not one of those guys that was like, I can't wait to be an entrepreneur. Um, my father was actually started his own company, and I think I, I saw all the work and effort that went into it and said, I'm, I'm, I'm not interested. And so, you know, I, I had worked at some startups. I've worked at some large technology companies, uh, and I was, I was pretty happy. I think I was probably more happier on the startup side than the large company side, um, just, you know, because of their ability to move quickly and sort of the freedom that you have. But about five years ago, I, I saw a problem specifically around data. You know, largely I was the company I was at was both a big buyer of data and a big seller of data. That process sucked on both sides of the equation. I said to myself, well, certainly I'm not the only person with this problem. And someone certainly has, has fixed it. I looked and I looked and I looked and no one had fixed the problem in the way that I wanted it to be fixed. And, and my personality is that, you know, I, once I see a problem, I have to try to solve it, you know, especially if I think it's a problem worth solving. Uh, so I saw the problem. I couldn't unsee it. Uh, I, I came up with a solution that I thought was pretty novel and pretty effective. And here I am. Excellent, man. Well, let's dig into data a little bit deeper because I, I I see a proliferation of it. Where, so people are drowning in it, but they're starving for insight. So I guess like if we take a different look at this, what is the value in data that companies have right now that, that's primarily untapped or that you see as a big gap that people are missing? Well, I mean, I think it's all over the place. I, I think, you know, if you if you follow the the technology universe, you look at companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook, and they, you know, they're data, data, data. And arguably, you know, a lot of the the enterprise value that's been created in those companies is on the back of the data they're able to collect about their customers and about the product usage and you know, commerce from from Amazon's perspective. And so, I think every company assumes that, hey, I've got data. I'm, you know, I can put it to use and I can use it just as as valuably as as those you know Fang companies can. When in reality, most organizations don't have the breadth or depth of data that, that the fangs do. And so when they try to do that, you know, they, they don't actually get the insights. They don't get the results that, that they ultimately need. Basically, you know, they realize that they have gaps in their data sets. Once you realize you have a gap, you know, you, you want to fill that gap if you think there's, there's real value there. And so we, you, know, you see more and more companies that are starting to talk to each other about how they can partner to fill those gaps, um, either unidirectionally or, bi or bidirectionally. Um, and so I think the biggest problem is, you know, people are, are drowning in data. Oftentimes, the data they have either isn't sufficient for the problem that they're trying to solve, or they, you know, they haven't found ways to put it together that, that answer the questions they're, they're trying to get answered. Okay. So that's, that's good. So what does it take then to, to do that? Like, what does it take to have sufficient data? And then how do you kind of approach that to drive business results from them? Yeah, I, th I think it starts with what's the question you're trying to answer? What's the prediction you're trying to make? Like, what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, we work with companies, you know, CPG companies that are trying to solve supply chain problems. And so their gap might be, you know, materials prices, or it might be shipping lane uh, delays, or it might be weather uh, in, in various geographic areas that may impact commodities or, or, or something similar. And so, you know, the question they're asking is, how can I get my products to market quicker? Or how can I get my raw materials to my plants faster so I can build those products? Other companies, it's, it's more basic. You know, if I'm running a, a hotel chain and I want to reward my most loyal customers, when they check in, I might want to know, hey, does this person like chocolate or do they like wine or do they like beer? You know, I, I may not know the answer to that just by, the, by virtue of them being, you know, having a, a loyalty card. But if I could actually enrich my CRM with additional information, I can give them a better experience when they check in. So, you know, it, you know, that's a, arguably a very trivial question. 
one might ask, you know, does my, does my customer prefer wine or beer? Um, but one, if you can get it at scale, you can create a better customer relationship, which should drive, you know, huge lifetime value gains. Okay. So are there any instances of getting data information at scale that like that, like you mentioned, I know the one beer or wine is really simple, right? But that you see SaaS companies implementing that is highly, highly effective that you're impressed with right now. So we work with some polling companies uh, and, and they offer basically a SaaS platform, right? So you're, you're a company that wants to poll, you know, your, your customers on, you know, why they like your product, why they, you know, why they you know, do what they do. Um, you, you can ask respondents a certain number of questions before they stop responding, right? So if you think about it as a political poll, like first, no one answers the phone anymore because everyone has caller ID and they don't pick up a random number. But if you get even if you get them to answer the phone, you can ask them maybe three questions before, you know, their, their attention span says, I'm not interested in this anymore, and they hang up. And so, you know, some of these polling companies that we work with that offer the SaaS platform, they basically have a, you know, we'll ask the question either as a phone respondent or a digital respondent. And then, you know, for any of the questions that you may want to know the answer to, but you're not willing to ask as your, you know, your first, second, or third most important question, they'll actually go uh, acquire that data from others and, and append it to the response as a, as a, a either an inferred response or as a, you know, just sort of a, a, a non-directly asked response. And so they've taken a problem, which is no one picks up the phone and, you know, I can only ask a person so many questions before they give up on me. And they found a solution by using portable data that, you know, that requires them not to ask the question. So what do you mean by that? So you mean like, um, are you saying like grabbing it from a third party source or you're just making assumptions based on how they answered prior questions or like what exactly? No, it's, it's, it's grabbing it from a third party source. So, so again, the, the, what our, what our platform allows is companies to share data with each other. And so, okay. uh, you know, I, I, I'm a, I'm a wine guy, not a beer guy. Uh, and, and I use a couple services that actually track, you know, what's in my cellar, what my favorite wines are, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so if I'm, if I'm the hotel chain and I don't know, you know, when, and I'm, and I'm a, I'm a loyal Marriott Bonvoy, uh, uh, customer, you know, when I check into that, that Marriott property, if they wanted to leave a bottle of wine in my room, uh, versus, uh, you know, a bottle of beer, they could actually acquire that data through, through a partner using our pipes. Okay. Which makes sense. And there's so many different distributed data sources right now. So are you like, that's, I think that's a good example too. So, and that probably comes in where your referral based growth strategy is with, with partnering, right? Cause you're, you're leveraging or kind of infusing that across different companies. So I guess like if we're looking at that, um, are companies deploying this as a, as a strategy from the get go prior to, to you kind of walking in or, is this kind of like an epiphany that they didn't know was out there uh, to, to kind of leverage this on a larger scale? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been an evolution. I, I think, you know, if you looked at 10 years ago, everyone was implementing their data infrastructure. So Hadoop and Spark and, you know, it, it was everyone had to have the same infrastructure architecture that Google had. You know, we may be going back 10 or 15 years. Um, I think the second phase of that is they realized, OK, I've got this infrastructure I've got to get my data organized in it, the data that I that I own. And that, you know, that took a number of years. I think the third phase of that was I don't know anyone that knows how to use this newfangled architecture that I put together, right? And so you saw the 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 prevalence of data science and data engineering. Suddenly you had to hire the right skill set 
to use the infrastructure and the data that you've spent years and years and years centralizing. I think the fourth phase of that, which we're seeing a lot of customers enter into is, okay, I've got the infrastructure. I've got my data. I've got the right people internally that know how to turn the data into some sort of value. And those people are not telling me that I don't have all the data that I need, right? I don't have all of the raw ingredients to actually go build a machine learning model or answer a very simple question. And so oftentimes when we get to people, they say, hey, you know, our data is great, but it's not sufficient. You know, how can you help us more, um, more agilely, uh, more efficiently go augment the data that we have so we can answer these questions and, and, and solve these problems that we're working on? Okay. So can you give me a few examples of that across a few different verticals? Yeah, so I gave the, I gave the polling example. Um, we, the, one of the CPG companies we work with is doing, um, supply chain optimization. They're actually starting, right? So, you know, if you think of a, a company that builds a product that's sold in a grocery store, you know, customers don't buy those consumer packaged goods directly from the manufacturer. Um, the manufacturer doesn't even sell it directly to the grocery store. They tend to go through some sort of distributor model. And so that, you know, that CPG company knows nothing about where their product is being sold or, or who's ultimately buying it. You know, one of the first problems that they're trying to solve is they're trying to understand in the stores that their product is sold, what does foot traffic look like? You know, are more people going to the corner bodega uh, or are more people going to, you know, the, the new Wegmans that, you know, just opened up in, in, in downtown? And, and once they can understand some of those, and again, they're disintermediated by their own distributors, they can actually start to, you know, put together a, a more thoughtful distribution strategy to make sure that the products are in the right places for the people to actually buy them. Um, there's some CPG companies that are actually going a step further where they're actually looking at shopping bas uh, basket analysis. So they are acquiring data from retailers that say, when people buy my product, here are the other products that they're buying. And that can lead to obviously marketing opportunities. But I think even more interestingly, there's a lot of R&D that actually gets generated around that. So you know, if I see every time someone buys my product, they're also buying uh, you know, kale chips yet my company doesn't manufacture or sell kale chips, you know, maybe that's an opportunity for me to either go acquire a company that sells kale chips or for me to go develop my own kale chip product because I know it, you know, the customer's telling me that it pairs naturally well with the, you know, the products that they're already buying from me. Okay. No, I think, I think that's brilliant, right? We, I just had another guest on and he was talking about as a growth strategy, do, do you build, buy, or um, acquire, right? Yeah. So same, same kind of concept with ancillary add-on projects, products, I should say additional revenue streams. So I think that's sharp. We've, and we've, we've actually seen a lot of the investor class be more data-driven. I mean, you know, I think they've always been data-driven insofar that they'll look at a P&L and, they'll, you know, they'll look at, you know, certain, you know, leading indicators that they think of what makes a good investment. But we're starting to see people, you know, use data to actually source deal flow to say, hey, you know, I can actually look at, uh, you know, from various places, you know, what the change in, in mobile application usages, you know, week over week or month over month, can I actually spot an app that's gaining popularity or gaining traction with a certain demographic that, that might make it highly valuable before the, the rest of the market has seen it? And then I'll go try to source that deal and, and, and invest in that company. So, you know, I, I think, you know, one of the broad things that we're seeing is historically a lot of businesses were run on tribal knowledge. You know, this is how we've always done things. This is how things will always be done. And people are realizing that tribal knowledge has some value, but it also has some limits and they're becoming, you know, much more data focused, um, even if that means going and having to hunt down the data that they need to, to, to ask and answer the question. Yeah, I think it's a really good point, man. A really, really good point.
Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter, check out other free content resources I have there, and let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. How did you create a referral-based growth strategy? Because I'd love to hear about that. Super passionate about that. Have seen the benefits of it. How did you deploy it in your business? And did you architect it that way from ground zero? No, I think it was a it was a mistake, uh, or, or, or at least entirely unplanned on our side. I, I mean, there, there's a component of our business that acts, looks, and feels like a marketplace. Um, you know, we're not actually buying anything. We're not selling anything. We don't own any of the data or, or you know, use any of the data ourselves, but we're the, you know, the pipes that make it easier for people to, to work with each other. And so I think marketplaces naturally have network effects. The way it's ultimately landed on our side is because we work with both sides of the market. We work on with data providers as well as companies that are acquiring data. And, and our general thesis is we want to make both their lives easier. We want to make it more efficient for them to do what they're trying to do. Um, if you really make their life easier, if you really make things more efficient, then they want to take, you know, not just the relationships they've cultivated in our platform, but they want to take all of their relationships and pipe it through their platform. And so the evolution of the referral-based program was really, we started as, as a marketplace. People came to us and said, hey, I would love to use your software outside of your marketplace. You know, if I already have a relationship, if I already have a contract with someone, your software still makes my life easier in a number of ways. And so I want to use that. So we went from you know purely a marketplace model where we took a percentage of the, the value of the transactions that cleared to a model where we were actually licensing software to our customers. But because we're a you know a SaaS platform, you know, the the you know onboarding a, a partner for one customer means that partner you know can also work with any other customer that's on the platform. And so you know basically what we've built is some some nudges, some some hints in the tool that say, hey, you know, this thing that you're doing with partner A, partner B, C, and D might be interested in as well. Um, and, and there's almost a, a, a communication element to it where, you know, we there, you have the marketplace, you have the software, and then you build a community on top of the whole thing, which actually generates uh, a lot of that referral-based business. I love that, man. That's brilliant. So, so at what points do you incorporate nudges? Is it just <clears throat> like, I guess, that, that's what I'm curious about. Anywhere that we think a nudge will be helpful, you know, we, we, we go through this on, on the product side a lot. I mean, we could nudge people constantly. We could say, hey, you know, come in, look at this new thing that has nothing to do with what you're trying to do. And I think those types of nudges just, you know, serve to annoy people. And so it's, it's largely where we can drive value. So if we know someone is um, uh, acquiring data, you know, a certain type of data from, from a partner, and we know there's another partner that has a very similar, um, but but maybe... Um, complementary data set, you know, that's where in the product or, or via email, um, you know, we can say, hey, you know, you're doing X, Y, and Z, you know, you could do this other thing and increase your scale or do it more cost effectively or, you know, spread out your risk. Um, and, and, and then conversely, on the other side, if, you know, someone's monetizing their data and we, you know, we see that the price that they have set has them out of line of what the price might be for, you know, some of their potential partners, you can give them a nudge and say, hey, you know, you could have made an extra hundred thousand dollars, you know, in the last two months, had you set your price at X instead of Y. Um, and so, you know, it, the, the, the nudges are largely, Hey, we can help you do the thing that you're trying to do. 
but you know those nudges obviously create new connections um, within our platform, and and that's actually one of the key metrics that that we look at as sort of connection growth. And so if you think of 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 the relationships in our product is is a you know almost a social network or as a graph, the more interconnected that graph is, um, you know we think the, the the more value the platform is creating, also the stickier and, and more long term value we're creating for our our investors and our shareholders. So what is it like? What's the target then? You because I think that's brilliant, man, and and I could tell you you've structured it. And I've never, maybe I have. I'm trying to think, but I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about kind of the negative nudge, right? Where it's like you missed out on X amount because you had a price this way potentially, or which I think is really sharp because people are four X likely to move away from pain than they are towards pleasure in some situations, right? So if they see like I lit a hundred thousand dollars on fire, then that gets people moving a lot of times, right? To make change. So is that what you see too from your, your interactions on that? Yeah, I, I think certainly showing people they could have made more money is a very easy nudge. Like, it, like it's hard for someone to be like, oh, I don't want to make more money. Um, I think that's especially true with data because it's a, it is a very hard asset to price. You know, it, it is not something that's driven off of commodities and supply chain and a manufacturing pipeline, right? There, There is no sort of, you know, inherent uh, supply constraint. Uh, you, know, you, can, you can create, you know, copies of data, you know, for very low marginal cost. And so when someone, you know, says, hey, I, you know, should I price my data at a dollar or $10,000? You know, the answer is also often, you know, it depends. Um, and so I think especially in that example, any, any directionality we can give them on what a good price is, knowing that, you know, there might not be one good price for the entire market. There might be niches within the market where you need to do some, some different pricing. Um, they're, they're very hungry for that. And frankly, that's not something they're getting from, from anyone else. No, I, I mean, it's very difficult to, to replicate. So <clears throat> I guess. What's the connection growth rate that you look for for every client then? Like, what's your target? You know, I, I don't know that we've looked at it on a, on a customer my customer basis, but, you know, we are seeing a connection growth rate across the network that grows. Um, it's probably not quite exponentially. If you graph it, it kind of looks exponentially. If I, I'm sure if I did the, you know, figured out what the, the, the actual growth rate was, it's slightly lower than that. But, that. but that's what you would expect, right? Every, every supplier that we bring on the platform, you know, can potentially work with any of the acquirers that are already on the platform and vice versa. It also removes a lot of friction that, you know, the more supply and demand we already have, the less, you know, the conversation is about, you know, is this worth my time and effort? And so, you know, we see, you know, we expect, you know, exponential growth there to a point you know, there are often, you know, there are budget constraints on the buy side. You know, there, there are some data strategies that say, hey, if I can buy a dollar's worth of data and it produces $10 worth of revenue, I'll buy, you know, all the data that, that, that's available there. There are other strategies that have more finite budgets. And so, you know, there, there are limits to the, to the network effects, um, you know, for any, for any given client. But certainly, the, you know, the ecosystem becomes much stronger as that grows. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely see that. So what did you do in the beginning to, to get some kind of traction initially? Like what was the, the, the big dominoes that you had to make happen early on in the process when you had nothing? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's, um, you're, you're bringing me back to my early VC conversations. They're all like, how, you know, how do you, you know, how do you start this up? Right. You know, network effects are great. And, but you know, they're non-existent when you have zero customers. It, it was pretty easy on our side. Sort of the you know, data collaboration is so difficult 
that most companies in the absence of a platform like ours, you know, if they do it at all, they do it, you know, they do the minimum they can do to sort of check the box. And so what you find is, you know, in a given type of data, there's usually one provider that is the biggest, you know, has, has more of that type of data than anyone else. And so the historic strategy on the buy side is I'm going to go work with that provider. And while there might be another 20 providers that in aggregate have a lot more than the biggest provider, I don't have the time or the energy to go work with 20 companies and do 20 integrations and 20 contracts and you know, all of the things that go along with it. And so they go work with the biggest provider. And that meant, you know, the, the way the math worked out is the biggest provider in any given market won 95% of deals. And the other 20 providers in that market would share the other 5% of deals if, if they were lucky. And so we turned it around. We went to providers two through 20 and said, hey, use our pipes to make your data available. On day one, you're not going to make any money. On day 90, you might not make any money. But you know, once we have all of the data in the platform and you're not giving up any control, you can price it, you can set whatever rules you, up, you, you want about it. We will then turn to the market of buyers that are buying your type of data. And now will it make a lot more sense for them to buy all of your data uh, you know, providers two through 19 or two through 20, instead of just buying data from, from provider number one. Um, and we actually saw that. And then what you saw was, you know, because the biggest provider had no interest in working in this in the early days, because they won 95% of the deals. They, they didn't need a tool like ours. And they were not super interested in making, you know, the, the life of the buyer any easier because they were winning all of the deals. We made the buyer's life easier. They stopped buying from the biggest provider because they were buying from the rest. Um, and, and then the biggest provider said, well, I want to work with you too, because I don't, I don't want to be the one that's only winning 5% of the deals. I want to continue to, you know, get at least a piece of all of the deals. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, data classes, we, we replicated that strategy to, to, you know, build those early network effects. That's awesome. I love that. Super creative. So what's the biggest, because it sounds like you're doing some things really, really well. And so I guess what's Nick, like, what's the biggest single biggest challenge you have with growing your business right now then? So what we built is unique. You know, you, people talk about category creation and, and, you know, if you look around, if you were to ask me who my biggest competitors are, I can give you answers to those questions. I think from a technology and a methodology perspective, you know, we're kind of in a class of our own. But when you build something unique, you have to educate the market. Uh, and, you know, small companies, you know, can only have so much uh, brand recognition. We only have so much, you know, ability to educate the market. And, and certainly the early years of the business, you know, educating the market was 99% of what we would do. We would go in and we would talk about what we do and they like, I don't get it. But, you know, people, you know, people understand really well what they understand. And then the farther you move away from whatever, you know, the, the median or the mean is, the harder it is for them to wrap their head around it. And I think, you know, to an extent that that still exists. I mean, there's big companies like Snowflake and Amazon and Databricks that have launched what are, you know, at a glance, somewhat competitive products. Uh, arguably, they don't have the same feature set that we do. And, and we think we're actually good complement to those solutions. But when you go in and someone says, well, Snowflake just told me they have, you know, they make data collaboration easy. Why would I work with you and not Snowflake? You know, you're back to that that education process. Okay. So the whole market awareness with, with um, exposure and things like that. So, so what are you doing to tackle that then? Well, you know, again, part of it is the referral leg growth, you know, easiest way to get to cut through that is to have, you know, someone that already works with the company say you need to be working with them because that's who we work with and it makes our life easier. Um, we are doing, we have, you know, a number of different, uh, you know, marketing programs everywhere from, you know, thought leaderships and panels to you know, the more the more tactical paid media, FBO, um, et cetera, et cetera. 
and we've got you know an amazing sales team. We brought in a CRO earlier this year, and and you know they're they're on the enterprise side. There's always a bit of hand to hand combat, and it's you know it's feeding that team with the you know the right talking points, the right materials. Um, so when they go in, you know they can very easily explain to people what the platform is and what it does. And then you know me being a product you know a product guy by trade, honestly I think the best way to do education once you get in front of someone is just to show them the product. Yeah. Um, and and honestly, that's been the most effective thing. You know, if we can get in front of someone, if we can you know take thirty minutes of their day, you give them the demo, you know, you you walk them through how it works, and that's when the light bulb goes off. Um, and data, it's kind of a hard thing to talk about because everyone thinks of it as this nebulous, you know, these electrons whizzing through the air, or they think of it as this, you know, this homogeneous. You know, we all talk about data, but it's, you know, there is no data. It's, it comes in an infinite number of forms. And so in, in some ways, the best way to, to cut through all the, the BS is just to sit down, show them the product and talk about their problem. Yeah. Now, that's good feedback, man. And that totally makes sense, especially with the stage you're at. So we unfortunately, we're up on time. I was This was great. It was really good insights that you gave just in terms of your whole model, how to, how to kind of attack it, referral, referral-based growth strategy. I love it. So where can people find you? Where can they find out more about narrative and then we'll take it from there yeah the the website's narrative.io uh i thank you for not calling us narrative io it's not like I've, I've said to others it's a great spam filter because we we stopped saying io five years ago but when i when i get spammed it, it, it always ends up in the subject line um i i'm personally technically on twitter nick underscore jordan uh i i'm kind of uh rejecting twitter at, at the moment so i may or may not be updating anything there and then i think you can search for both me and, and the company on linkedin and, and find a bunch of information there excellent well nick it was a pleasure having you on the show and uh, we look forward to seeing you all on the next episode thank you for checking out the scale up show my mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue and growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.